Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 83, brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear. Today we're jumping into part number two of our Deer Movement DIY Report mini-series with Dr. Bronson Strickland, so stay tuned. Alright, alright. What is up, everybody? Hope everyone out there is having a good Wednesday. Hope you're getting a chance to get into the timber. Hope hope some of you have uh, wrapped some tags around some deer. Definitely have been seeing some deer hit the ground here on social media. A couple buddies of mine have uh, actually tagged a couple nice ones. Gotta say, I'm uh, just a little bit jealous. Um, would love if the weather would start to, um, I guess, make a turn for the better to be a little bit more accommodating for uh, for hunting season here, man. It's been in the 80s, high 70s and 80s. It doesn't really make you feel like it's uh it, it's time to hit the hit the timber, but uh there is a cold front a coming this weekend. I'm debating whether or not I'm going to hit the swamp because uh, do have a couple those couple big deer that are in the swamp that I'd still like to chase. But there's a really nice temp drop that's happening in Ohio, and I'm, I'm really tempted to jump in the truck, maybe take a day on Friday off of work, get out there late Thursday night and maybe hunt Friday, Saturday, and Sunday because the uh, the weather is looking pretty choice for uh, for the area that I'm going to be hunting in Ohio. So thinking about making a quick trip out there this weekend, uh, we'll see if that comes to uh, if that comes to fruition or not. But regardless, uh, be getting out into the timber this weekend because the weather looks like it's going to be favorable at least and try to get some, uh, if nothing else, just try to put some meat in the freezer. That's usually try, I try to make that my goal at the beginning of the year, but a couple of these bigger deer have kind of had me... Uh, preoccupied I guess so to speak so I've yet to put any meat in the freezer and so maybe I should make that the goal this weekend maybe I should just concentrate on doing that but uh, today we have a cool show um, have part number two with uh, Dr. Bronson Strickland talking about deer movement the first uh, part if you haven't listened to yet I you know highly recommend you go back and check that out he's a wealth of knowledge 
PhD knows his stuff whenever it comes to uh, when it, when it comes to, to, to talking deer. Uh, but the first part we did was really talking about more about deer movement at a higher level, excursions and things like that. When you're talking about a, I guess what I would say is more of a herd dynamic and just how how deer you know move in general. Um, this next section, part number two, is really we're starting to now focus more into singular deer and how specific deer you know might might move or how different conditions might make deer move. You know, so for example, precipitation or barometer, you know, barometric pressure. We talk a little bit about the moon. I know that's always a, a fun topic to cover because there's a lot of folks who are believers and then there's a lot of folks who are non-believers. So it's interesting to get a, a scientist's perspective on what impact, if any, that the the moon has. Uh, and that's really what we're doing today is really going to kind of look at how deer move in, individually and what might trigger them to to move, as well as the length lengths of periods of, of movement, movement as well. Or I guess maybe a better way to put it is is when does their movement start to ramp up and when do they become most active during the course of the season? Because I think, you know, a lot of times folks think that, you know, certain parts of the year, whether it's the, the quote unquote October lull, um, that they see less and less deer movement. But a lot of the stuff that I've seen, you know, or se- seminars and stuff that I've sat in on, like you typically will see, you know, increased movement throughout the year. So the lull isn't necessarily a lull in deer activity. It's a lull in you, us, I shouldn't say you, but us as hunters seeing it if we're not in the right places. Um, so really cool conversation with Dr. Bronson Strickland. Looking forward to part number two here. Hope you guys enjoy it. But before we jump into that, let's take a quick second to talk about our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. First and foremost, we are brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear, the longest, lastest, fastest cutting, toughest tree trimming equipment you have ever used. Simply put, the toughest saws on earth. How tough are they? Tough enough to come with a lifetime warranty. And right now, when you visit wickedtreegear.com, Use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and get a 20% discount on your Wicked purchase. We're also brought to you by Exodus Outdoor Gear. The Trek comes in at $145 price point and has the same proprietary shell design as the Lift 2 Series camera. Same five-year warranty and unmatched customer service policies, photo, video, time-lapse, and hybrid modes, all with a single, simple, single backlit LED display. You also get about 20,000 images on one set of lithium batteries, which is pretty kick-ass. I just checked batteries here or checked cameras here, I guess two weeks ago, man. These, I don't even know how long these cameras have been up, but I still had like 30, 40% battery in, on every camera. So if you'd like to learn more about Exodus trail cameras, check them out at exodusoutdoorgear.com. If you like what you see, save yourself 20 bucks and use the promo code TRUTH at checkout. We're also brought to you by Glacier Coolers. This is the time of year when you're getting ready to go on hunting trips. Maybe you're tagging some some game. You need to keep it cold and uh, and unspoiled on your trip back home. This is when a Glacier Cooler would come in handy. Whether you're hunting, camping, or fishing, you'll enjoy smarter design, stronger construction, and superior insulation of Glacier Coolers. Visit them at GlacierCoolers.com, promo code TRUTH at checkout, and save yourself 20% and get a kick-ass cooler for a working man's budget. And now with that, let's jump into the show with Dr. Strickland. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of The Truth From The Stand, Deer Hunting Podcast. You're listening to the DIY Report mini-series talking about deer movement with Dr. Bronson Strickland, part number two. How's it going? It's going great. Going great. Thanks Good. for having me. Yeah, you bet. I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking about part number two here because I think the first section that we did you know, at least for me, you know, whenever I think about deer movement, it was nice to kind of get that bird's eye view of like what's happening to deer on the whole from a movement perspective. 
which helps you start to understand and maybe start to put some some rhyme to the reason um, as to what they do individually. And that's what we're going to talk about today is what deer are starting to do in, individually in terms of movement. And we'll just go ahead and kind of jump right into it because we, we started talking about it a little bit in part one when we, when we referenced bachelor groups, you know, a, a few different times. So, you know, when bachelor groups break, break up, you know, what specifically is, is happening that is driving this and how far will bucks move from their summer area or from their home range to their seasonal range when they, when they do break up? Okay. Yeah. Great question, Clint. So think about uh, a bachelor group, you know, during the summertime, during the growing season, uh, typically in most areas, that's when you have the most abundant vegetation or, you know, food resources that are available. And corresponding with that, this is really important. You actually have this bachelor group because testosterone levels are really, really, really low. It's just baseline testosterone at that point in time. And bucks, for lack of a better word, they're, they're able to tolerate each other. <laughs> you know, they, they don't have that uh, the aggression that comes with mm-hmm. testosterone. So what happens when that breakup is occurring, testosterone levels are rising. You know, antlers are becoming fully formed. And then testosterone levels are really, you know, when, when testosterone level peaks, that's, of course, when the velvet shedding occurs. And most of your bachelor groups have have broken up by then. So um, it's one of those things where those groups can, uh, a bachelor group, they can be together because they can tolerate each other. But but furthermore, um, it's also because of the food resources that are available. Right. So when they start to, so when that testosterone starts to kind of to pump, right, and it it breaks them up and they start to go hard horn and stuff like that. So is there... Is there something environmentally that's happening that kind of that signals to them that this is now the time that their body should react that way? Like, is it, you know, because I know when we talk about and we'll talk about this in part three when we get into when we get into talking about the rut more specifically. But is there is there anything to do with the photo period that starts to kind of make this change, this transition work for them? Well, th- think of photo period, and, and that, again, for people, that, that's the ratio of daylight to darkness, and that ratio changes throughout the year. During the summertime, you have far more light than, than dark. Um, so basically, photo period is a trigger, and it begins this cascading effect, and there's a whole bunch of different glands in the brain and so forth that uh, stimulate the endocrine system to start producing more testosterone, but that's how it happens. So photo period would be the trigger that begins the production increased production of testosterone testosterone is pulsing through their veins their behavior starts to change Hmm. it's kind of a cue that i don't want to tolerate you know this guy anymore uh and it's time for me to go somewhere else you know to my where where i hang out in the fall you know my fall home range Right. I think I heard you explain it at one point. I think it was you that explained it this way. It's like it's just to kind of give reference to, to the folks out there listening that might have kids. If you have I have a daughter who is 10, so she's hitting that like preteen era. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when those hormones start changing, it's like think about how 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 easy or difficult it might be as they begin to change in your children and how easily you're able to tolerate them <laughs> might be a good way to might be a good way to frame it. Right. Well, um, well, how many times as, as someone who has two daughters, right. uh, how many times have we heard people say, man, when they turn 13, they're just not a different, they're a completely a different person now. <laughs> right. What happened to my little, you know, little <laughs> Susie or whatever. Right. Like, yeah, they are a different person now. Yeah, exactly. And so that's happening on an annual scale with these bucks. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that I could take that on an annual scale. I only want to ride that ride one time if it's, if it's all right with everyone. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, so, all right. So I want to, I want to shift gears here and talk now just and talk just a little bit about pre-rut. So I'm curious that to know that are there, are there elements or, you know, distances that of travel or characteristics of the pre-rut time of season that are related to movement. So are there certain types of expansion of movement or increased movement that starts to happen during this time of year and how much so beyond what is typical, I guess? Yeah, well, think of the the, the pre-rut is, um, so they're, they're going to be, if, if they had a seasonal shift, you know, a lot of them do, some of them don't, but a lot of them do. Um, so they're basically building their, I like to think of it as their social network. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to learn who all is here, what all females are here, uh, the, all the signpost behavior that, that you're uh, familiar with. Mm-hmm. That's when, you know, rubbing and scraping and, um, you know, they're basically learning about the population that they're uh, interacting with. Mm-hmm. Um, really don't see as compared to the rut. You know, you're not going to see these big uh, daily or two or three day shifts uh, but it's mainly just more thoroughly exploring and working and understanding uh, their their fall home range. Right. So is it fair to say that as that time happens, like you're going to start to see increased that you would see increased movement? So if we just use it, use the example of if outside of pre-rut and before back. So let's take it this way. If during the summer they only move an hour a day and I'm just making stuff up at this point an hour mm-hmm. a day and then they hit the bachelor group breakup and now they move two hours a day. And then once they, once they hit three rut pre-rut, they move in daylight or move three hours a day consistently. Like, are we seeing that kind of consistently builds so they're covering more ground as the season kind of progresses? I don't know if it's that defined Clint. And, mm-hmm. and I think it would just vary a lot by individuals as well. We, we just see so much individual variation with these guys some of them just move more and some of them are just so much more sedentary it would have a lot to do with food as well Mm -hmm. uh that we talked previously how is food distributed uh on the property right does a buck have to get out and look for every bite or can he stand in a few places and fill his room in so just a lot of variation i'm sorry i can't give you a, a rule about that but um that's just kind of what what I've seen. No, and that makes me think of, you know, during that same kind of time period or maybe just slightly before pre-rut, you know, what people refer to as the is the October lull. Like you kind of mentioned the idea of like how far does he have to move to 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 find food and you know, that time of year is when you really kind of have you know, acorns and stuff like that hitting the ground to where it's if they've picked the right kind of home range or seasonal range, you know, for that time of year and they have an acorn crop that's close by, it's that buck doesn't have to move a whole lot, which would kind of say that maybe you don't see him that often during that time of the year. It's not that he's not moving. He's just having to move a lot less than he would typically have to. Is that and, fair? And Yeah, that, that, that's fair. And and I'm not, I just wanted to comment on the October lull. I'm mm-hmm. not a big believer in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say it's a myth buster thing yet. Uh, hopefully when we get finished with this study, I can, I can say there's any uh, truth to it or not, but you know, you got to think about this too is in a lot of areas, October is when hunting really gets going, gets right. really into full swing. And what we have shown uh, very well and very clearly is that when hunters start getting out in the woods, when they start pushing deer and disturbing deer, that is what changes their, their movement patterns a lot. 
So it may not be you may not be categorizing this as a a rut phenomenon. It may be a disturbance phenomenon of why they're shutting down. And then so the deer here's an, an alternative hypothesis. It might be that you used to uh, see deer, whatever metric you were using, uh, three bucks a day. Right. And then during October, you didn't see maybe a buck every other day. Well, that may be just be the response to all the human activity. And then November rolls around, and now we have rut behavior, and now you're seeing bucks again. So it wasn't necessarily that it was a lull because of any environmental condition or because it was the pre-rut. It may have just been a lull because their behavior changed from disturbance, and then it increased because of the rut. Right. Which kind makes, of a different way of looking at it. Yeah, no, that's cool. It's And it's interesting, too, because it would make, make it seem exponentially worse by comparison, right? Like when you get to rut and there is a lot more movement and you kind of come out of the, you know, I'm using air quotes, the quote-unquote lull, um, it, it kind of makes that time period where they're probably reacting, to your point, to environmental pressures that much more, you know, uh, slow than maybe it is in reality because you're comparing it against the thing that you're you're hunting in, which is the rut during that movement phase. That yeah, you you're know, comparing it to the gold standard, the right, rut. Right. So <laughs> yeah. it's like maybe we have to recalibrate our, our our perspective a little bit as we as we go through the different times of times of year to kind of account for what we might or might not see. Um, so you did mention a few moments ago. You started to kind of mention, you know, indi- you know, talking about their individual kind of movement and that they're they're each, you know, slightly unique and that you know they have their kind of own way about how they're going to to move at these different times and so forth. So, you know, so an individual buck specifically, you know, when it's checking doe bedding areas, and so now we're getting into you know that pre rut or you know maybe even tickling the, the beginning of rut a little bit. You know, and it, it, when he's checking doe bedding areas, do they have a system or a pattern by which they check, or is it random? Is there like a number that they check, a number of bedding areas, or do they have, or do they check as many as they can get to? So, what's kind of their method for the the doe bedding area kind of perusing, if you will? Yeah, that's a, a great question, and we're we're really starting to to dig into this. And, and in fact, one of our students. Uh, Ashley Jones is, is actually looking at this with, with her project, and um, one of my colleagues in South Texas uh, did a similar study down there, so we were kind of comparing uh, this behavior in South Texas versus in Mississippi. Um, in South Texas, there were fewer of the, what we called them was focal areas, mm-hmm. which basically was, we, we think, is like a doe social group. Um, and down there in South Texas, uh, it might be checking every couple days, um, whereas what we found out in Mississippi was that there's a lot more of these focal areas, and the bucks here are just are moving more often. And so Ashley, her her first analyses, what they're showing is that a buck is checking these focal areas sometimes as few as every six hours. Hmm. Which to me, as a hunter, when I hear that, I think that means that that buck is going to show himself during daylight hours. Right. Yeah. But, and so what we think, you know, we don't, again, we're just kind of getting into this and trying to understand it, but probably a lot of that Clint has to do with deer density, you know, deer are, are far less dense there. And so maybe those focal areas where those does are hanging out are further apart. And mm-hmm. so maybe it's a longer trip to get there. Maybe he hangs out there a little bit longer and then maybe here in Mississippi where they're more dense, these focal areas, 
is that they just check them more frequently. Hmm. That's interesting. So, so you know, outside of the frequency or the the time frame between checking, is there an ultimate number that they tend to to get to, or is that again kind of possibly dictated by the the, the density? So, I guess what I'm looking for is like, does a is a buck um, focused on three specific doe bedding areas, or will they focus on as many as they can possibly get to in a reasonable amount of time? With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Yeah, I, I would say the latter versus the former. Hmm. So I would say within his within his range, you know, that seasonal home range, uh, what we were talking about previously, he's, he's built his social network. He knows where these clusters of females are hanging out. He's probably going to do his best to, to check them as frequently as he can. Hmm. Um, you, you know, now he's still got to support his body. He's still got to stop and eat. He's still got to avoid hunters and things like that, but uh, it's to his advantage to check as often as he can. Hmm. So, and, and you'd mentioned his, you know, his his home range as you know as often as he can, and within, within his home range, have you ever seen, heard of, you know, or, or read a, a study or, or witnessed research that suggested that a buck would have two home ranges, and and if by the off chance that you've have seen that what what would be the reason for them to have two home ranges um i think we talked about it previously what what i call the dumbbell home range Hmm. um yes yes but but and what we found in our study it's only about a third of the bucks have these um and we, we don't know uh we we hope that through this study we can get some greater insight uh because we're also tracking uh hunter activity as well and so you may have some of these bucks, and again, this is an early, early hypothesis here, but you may have some of these bucks that just do not tolerate disturbance as much as others. And it might be some cumulative threshold of I'm getting disturbed, I'm getting disturbed, I'm smelling human scent all the time, all right, I'm going to bolt and go to this other area where disturbance is less. Or, or it may be driven by their stomach. It hmm. may be they, they know that they can capitalize on some particular uh, suite of food resources at a particular time of year. Hmm. So a year from now, Clint, I hope to have some some better insight as to that. Right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I'd I'd be curious to follow up with you on that just to kind of see it's like I'd be interested to know if you're seeing similar. So within a particular buck, if if you're seeing him have that dumbbell kind of home range effect in that he's finding similar habitat in both kind of places and then one level up above that is you know the deer that you're seeing across the spectrum of deer that you're following are are you seeing them consistently kind of gravitating towards specific type of habitat that are that they're using consistently as a secondary home range primary home range or secondary home range before we continue our conversation let's talk about wicked tree gear saws hardcore deer hunters need hardcore tools do yourself a favor and check out wicked tree gear the toughest hand saws and pull saws on earth You buy it once, you buy it for life, backed by a lifetime guarantee. Right now, if you use the promo code TRUTH, you'll save 20% on your next purchase with free ground shipping. So head over to wickedtreegear.com and get a saw that's tough enough to work as hard as you hunt. 
Right. Because we would... are going to dig into that very question. We've already started. You know, what makes up these? Now, and and the the answer, the the preview here is that um, it, it's related to cover. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and furthermore, it's not just cover, but it's the type of cover. So, of course, you have to have cover that's going to provide them screening, you know, literally where they mm-hmm. become invisible to a predator to human. Uh, but then, but then also the type of cover that can simultaneously provide food is where they are selecting. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I'd love to follow up with you on that. Cause that's just kind of, uh, interesting. I was thinking it as, as you were mentioning, it'd be really cool to kind of see what the, what similarities there were overlaps there were between the different deer that are having secondary home ranges. But yeah, and, and I want to dig into that because, again, what, you know, I like sharing information for management. And so if we can figure out what is drawing a buck to this particular spot to bed and spend most of his time, then that's an opportunity for management. Yeah, absolutely. And there would be all kinds of, uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, weekend warrior managers like me, you know, that would love to hear uh, information like that to figure out how I can make my, uh, make my little honey hole just a little bit more attractive if I could. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll be right there with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the next thing I want to talk about, and this is something that I think is very, uh, you know, discussed a lot and I don't know that there's any concrete information out there, but I wanted to get your perspective on it. So the moon very, you know, I don't, I don't want to say controversial, you know what I mean? Necessarily, but there's, you have lots of folks on both sides of the fence that it has an impact. You have a lots of folks that are on the other side of the fence that, don't believe that has an impact at all. So, you know, from your perspective, research that you've seen and, and so forth, you know, and then even, you know, put, you know, even put your hunter hat on for, for this one as well from, you know, just what you've witnessed as well. You know, does moon in your opinion, you know, have any impact on deer movement in general? So whether it's a red moon an overhead and underfoot moon, whatever the case might be, the backside of a full moon, you know, there's all types of theories out there. Is there anything that you've seen that you can kind of say, yes, I've seen some consistency with this? We, isn't that so romantic? I mean, <laughs> why do so many people gravitate towards this? Uh, I think it's kind of this mysterious thing, the moon and its impacts. And again, I guess it's fun to think about, but we have sliced this up about every way you can possibly do it. We've done it individually with individual deer in our pens uh we've done it with free-ranging populations and there is absolutely no effect that we can find with the moon none whatsoever it doesn't matter if 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 it's dark if it's if the moonlight is bright it doesn't matter if it's a full moon and but there's cloud cover we cannot find any relationship and I, i keep coming back to this clint and i don't mean to sound facetious with this but this is what I come back to is a deer is going to move every single day. Right. A deer has to feed, fill its rumen every single day. Uh, there might be some subtle shifts from day to day as to when they do it, but you are guaranteed that a deer is going to move every single day to find food. Right. And then especially, you know, when you add the rut to that, they're certainly going to move. So when we put all that together, and when we look, you know, and people have looked at it from a buck's standpoint, his movements, we've looked at it from from does, their movement in terms of is and our angle, Clint, was the rut because mm-hmm. there's all this after X, you know, this moon and that moon and it's going to stimulate the rut. And there's zero evidence for that. Absolutely none. Yeah, it's one of those things like I, I, I personally don't really buy into it. So I had an odd experience the first year I decided to 
I was like, you know what? I'm going to give the moon a shot. Got the moon guide. I was like, I'll follow this. And just, I wasn't going to base hunts on it necessarily, but I was just going to kind of pay attention to it whenever I did go out and hunt. And the first set I did, I saw what the red moon was, and it was telling me that, you know, I should have movement around 4.30. I don't remember the exact time that it was, but they just call it 4.30 for conversational purposes. And wouldn't you know that the only movement I saw the entire day was three bucks at like 4.32. You know what I mean? It was one of those things. Like, <laughs> right. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I was like, this, there might be something to this thing. And then every time after that, I've never really, I, you know, it, it wasn't consistent. And then I also you know, I kind of stopped paying attention to it, to it as well. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think even, even if there was something to it, I think there are certain states like Pennsylvania that has such significantly high pressure, significantly more than, you know, many other states that a lot of things that people will attribute to movement, which might just be a deer being a deer, um, doesn't happen in certain places because there are external kind of environmental factors that they're being impacted by that they might not be exposed you know, experiencing in a state that has significantly lower pressure with significantly higher food, you know, availability. Right. So, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So like the case you're describing, yeah, the, 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 the hunting pressure might override any of those other kind of natural pressures or tendencies. Right, right, exactly. So it's like, you know, so I, I don't give, I'm always a little skeptical of those things where, you know, where people feel like they can predict based on some, you know, something that doesn't really have anything to do with their survival or their cover or their, or their feeding necessarily, I guess is what I'm, what I'm kind of getting at because there's a lot of variables across different, different States and so on and so forth that kind of impact that, that you really can't draw a bead on it. But yeah, there's so many interactions that are going on that, that are going to, you know, affect when a deer is going to move or not. It's just so difficult to isolate it, you know, to just one thing. And Clint, you mentioned earlier about confirmation bias. And so what you just described would be a great example of it for mm. some people that take it so far, mm-hmm. you know, I'm only going to hunt when it's between 30 and 40 degrees. Right. And then you go out and see deer when it's 30 to 40 degrees, and, and then it just reaffirms. You just become more and more entrenched. Right. But, but if you're you, not randomly sampling other times, I was just gonna other say, temperatures. I was so just, how do you know? Yeah, I was just going to say that. I was going to say, if you only ever hunt when it's 30 to 40 degrees, you're only ever going to see deer when it's 30 to 40 degrees. So, Absolutely. So, you know, a, 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 a wrong clock is correct twice a day. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like that type of thing. So. But uh, so the next thing I want to talk about a little bit, and I'm interested to get your perspective on this, because as a hunter, this is something that I do that I do follow. Um, yeah, I don't subscribe wholesale to all these necessarily where I don't pin my hopes and dreams to them, per se. Um, but I will pay attention to them and, and we'll kind of go through them in like a bullet point fashion here. But but, you know, how do you feel the, the movement is impacted by the weather, weather in general? When I say the weather in general, you know, what I'm referring to is, you know, rain and precipitation, wind, you know, the different, you know, variations in wind speed is their movement whenever it's slower or faster or whatever the case is. And then barometric pressure. Do you, or are any of those things kind of impactful in terms of predicting deer movement in your opinion? Well, um, it, it's not my opinion. We, uh, we have some data that, that confirm there is some merit to that, but nice. it comes with a really, really big caveat. Um, so this is not going to be one of those incremental relationships where if we increase wind speed by 5%, there's going to be an increase in deer movement by 5%. Mm-hmm. When you look at the data, you only see, like with wind, for example, you only see changes at very, 
very extreme events. Hmm. So it is extremely windy. And, and, and literally how we have it sliced up, um, we use a term called standard deviation. You know, it's, it's yeah. how, how far an observation is from the mean. Yep. So basically you've got to be on the bottom 5%, you know, the rare, rare 5% of the, say, wind being calm or the rare 5% when it's really, really windy. But in between, in that other 90% of wind conditions, you don't see any relationship whatsoever. Wow, that's interesting. And, and, it's, and surprisingly with wind, you know, a lot of people say, well, heck, it's so windy outside. Oh, here's another – that's another good confirma- confirmation bias uh, story here. Well, if it's really, really windy, heck, the deer aren't going to move. Right. Well, also, when it's really, really windy in the wintertime, it's usually uncomfortable for you to hunt. Right. <laughs> and so you don't <laughs> yeah. go that often. Yeah. But, but the data are clear. When it's really, really calm, you know, when it's rarely calm and when it's rarely windy, actually deer movements increase. Hmm. That's interesting. And, I- and the same thing occurs for pressure. Barometric pressure even, huh? Barometric pressure, uh-huh. Wow, that's interesting. So there's not an envelope of barometric pressure in which they... So uh, l- let me ask it this way. Are you suggesting... Is it is it when pressure is rarely high is when you're seeing it most often? Because that's a lot of... It's one of the things you hear a lot of folks talk about. It's like they're looking for light precip, you know, a 15-ish mile per hour wind in a high pressure day on the backside uh, of the front. Yep, it, it is. It's, it's the it's the drastic, drastic increase in pressure hmm. is when we saw it. But interestingly, with pressure, um, it was very it was highly variable. So whatever that trigger was for deer, some of them increased their movement. I mean, literally like double, triple the amount, and some of them didn't. So we saw an overall effect when you take the average from that group. There was a change in the average, meaning the average they moved more on that extreme barometric pressure, but it was not uniform across deer. Hmm. And, and I, I don't have an answer for that other than just, again, deer individuals and some of the environmental prompts um, cause some deer to move and, and other times it doesn't. Right. Well, at least I know that my my assessment of watching the weather and barometric pressure isn't necessarily for not during the season. <laughs> Because as much time as I spend staring at, at at weather apps from the uh from like mid September through the end of November is is not completely in vain. So that's that's good to know that I haven't wasted all that time necessarily. Um, well, just keep in mind that this coming season that um it, it's not going to be the the little shifts. It's got to be the big changes. Right. Right. To yeah. stimulate movement. Yeah. Well, cool. So I think that that wraps up our part number two, talking about more, you know, individual deer and what's kind of creating creating some of the movement that we're seeing as as hunters. And uh, with that, I think we can wrap this one up. And I'm looking forward to uh, the why behind the rut for part number three. Absolutely, I look forward to it, Clint. Thank you. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank Dr. Strickland for joining. Be sure to check out his podcast, Dear University, for in-depth reviews of the science behind all things whitetail. And also, follow them on Facebook and Instagram at MSU Deer Lab. That's Mississippi State University Deer Lab. We'd, of course, like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast 
we'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for us. Before we shut this thing down, we'd like to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Trophy Ridge, Ozonics, Obsession Bows, Tech and Money Seed, Glacier Coolers, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. And until next time, we'll see y'all. gang the new truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on youtube below any of the truth from the stand videos i've got some new hats beanies t-shirts long sleeve t-shirts and sweatshirts there's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro dosing adversity so head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code truth t-r-u-t-h and save yourself some cash on the new gear